Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up, COVID deniers. They're still around, even at this stage of the pandemic. The AstraZeneca vaccine has now been approved in Canada. And should the Beijing police be deciding who gets to come to Canada? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I was at the dentist today, so if I slobber while doing this, please, please forgive me. Say it, don't spray it. It's especially important during COVID-19. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Somebody mop us down. Now, this is an interesting segment that uh, Global News has uh, coming up in regard to uh, COVID deniers. It's on uh, 7 o'clock tonight on Global. The Public Health Agency of Canada is warning that uh, the infodemic is worsening around the pandemic in Canada. The hoaxes and lies proliferating are causing confusion and distress uh, distrust in the country. Uh, the impact on ordinary Canadians is devastating, with many families struggling to understand how a loved one could have fallen so quickly out of touch with reality. Uh, anti-lockdown rallies, uh, discounting science, health warnings, uh, this once fringe movement of COVID deniers is growing in numbers and starting to impact uh, how healthcare workers are able to do their jobs uh let's bring in jeff semple senior correspondent from global national of course uh hosts this thing tonight and is with us now jeff thanks for the time i hope you're doing well hey scott yeah doing well thanks so you, 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 you seem to think jeff that as time goes on and we learn more that there would be less of this not more yeah i mean that's it right is uh, i mean at the beginning sure we're hearing about a new virus this time last year and you know you'll remember this time last year there were lots of conspiracy theories um, yeah, so why is it that now, you know, public health authorities in Canada are really sounding the alarm? And, you know, I'll tell you, almost every frontline doctor you talk to growing increasingly concerned about this issue because they are, they say, seeing more patients who are either showing a blatant disregard for um, public health measures or, uh, in some cases, believe that COVID-19 is a hoax, part of some global conspiracy. Um, and... What's concerning is that I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. The pandemic has created a perfect storm uh, for conspiracy theorists. You have yeah. people who are afraid, uh, who are sitting at home in isolation, spending a lot of time on the Internet. And as a result of that, experts who monitor conspiracy theories say that their membership is growing exponentially. Uh, and you have a lot of ordinary people who have no history of, you know, dabbling in conspiracy theories who are now drinking this Kool-Aid. I spoke to one uh, family physician in Kingston, Ontario, Joy Hatley, who is seeing this not only from her patients, but from within her own family. Uh, Her immediate family members, university educated, uh, suddenly start sharing videos um, on emails and social media um, with claims that the COVID-19 test is fake or that Bill Gates is secretly inserting trackable microchips into the vaccines. Now, of course, these you know, claims have been widely debunked. Um, they, you know, but and they might sound silly to, to you and I, but, you know, there, this is no joke. I mean, public health authorities are sounding the alarm. They are very concerned, particularly at this moment, right, Scott, as you were talking about, given the push to get people out to get their vaccines. At the same time, you see these groups trying to undermine the public's trust in those vaccinations. 
I remember about halfway through this uh, pandemic, the messaging started to change because people were saying, well, I'm not getting it. And I don't know anybody that's got it. And anybody that's got it has gotten over it and blah, blah, blah. And um, and the issue was all about the disease itself. And then all of a sudden it became crystal clear. The problem here is not the disease in the sense that if, if a healthy person gets it, chances are they will recover. The majority of people do recover from this. That's not the issue. The issue has always been is that those that do get sick get very sick and end up or can get very sick and end up in ICU units clogging them up and slowing down the hospital system. Um, um, you know, and it seemed once they started to really sell that message that it's, you know, people kind of uh, understood it more. What, what would these people say about the people that are in uh, hospital wards? Are they faking it? Well, I mean, that's that's it, right? I mean, that's why I mean, I've, you know, over the course of the pandemic have spent a lot of time on the front lines inside hospitals wearing PPE and taking precautions, of course, but like seeing this stuff firsthand. And I think, you know, obviously doctors see it every day and that's why it is so hard for them to and hard for them to to keep their emotions in check. I mean, they get very angry and animated. A lot of frontline physicians, when you start talking about these conspiracy theories, suggesting that these are, you know, fake hospitals, um, you know, fake tests that I mean, there, you know, we saw when we were I was sort of going down the rabbit hole researching this story. There are a lot of videos of people, you know, trying to get into hospitals with their cell phone cameras to show that they look empty, you know, in the lobby. Um, and I mean, in the first wave, that was true in part because they canceled a lot of uh, non-emergency surgeries, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, to make room. But yeah, I mean, that is it. I mean, like we are, and I mean, we've been careful in this, you know, you were sort of noting in the beginning of your question there, we were careful in this report to draw a distinction between people who simply oppose lockdowns and think that we need to be reopening their, the economy. Uh, so that, you know, versus people who actually think this thing is a conspiracy and think that there's some cabal of, of world leaders who have orchestrated this pandemic to essentially take over the world um, and, and to turn us into sort of a communist global society. Um, and, you know, there are I spoke to uh, Carmen Celestini at the University of Guelph, not far from you. Or, sorry, at the University of Waterloo, I should say. And um, she studies conspiracies full-time. And she says, that, you know, there are so many different theories um, that have been created in the context of the pandemic. But most of them tend to follow that narrative, that this is a secret plot by a group of world leaders to essentially take over the world to restrict our freedoms. That masks are sort of a way to test to see how, how obedient we are. Um, that the serve <laughs> is to get us to spend all our money. Uh, and that, you know, Justin Trudeau and his pals in, you know, the world leadership forums are, are basically trying to take over and restrict all our freedoms. So, I mean, you, I know and you chuckled there and people do, um, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a concern. I mean, at what point, you know, and we were talking about people who, and this is the thing, like people who, like I mentioned, Dr. Dr. Joy Hatley's family, you know, they have university degrees, um, well-educated uh, people with no history of dabbling in conspiracy theories who are being seduced by this stuff. We have, you know, I, and I mean, I'm not to get too much into it on the radio, but like a friend of our family, and you're sort of hearing this anecdotally more and more that people have a yeah. cousin or a neighbor or a friend who is really getting into the, the weeds on this stuff. And, and that's a concern, especially at this critical moment when we're trying to get the vaccines into as many arms as possible. So this, I mean, there's always been anti-vaxxers. There's always been the anti-vax movement uh, since way back when, Jeff. Uh, but this is a different scenario, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure, right? I mean, this is, they have, and what's interesting about this one, because we looked, we worked with a team at Concordia University in Montreal who sort of data scientists and online experts, extremism experts, who have been trying to track the so-called conspiracy super super spreaders. Like, who is behind all of this? Who's driving all of this? And of course, you know, you do find anti-vaccine groups, right, who are there right at the forefront. Um, but you also find, like, other fringe groups, anti-Islam groups, anti-immigrant, far-right, white supremacist groups. Some of them have, have rebranded. They have, you know, changed their websites. They are now dedicated to the COVID conspiracy issue. Um, and that they are all kind of driving this together. They've also flagged, I mean, you mentioned China in your headline, uh, an expert at, um, at um, this university, Concordia in Montreal, concerned that the Chinese and Chinese state media are really pushing narratives that specifically undermine the trust in Western vaccines. So pushing, you know, whether it's fake news or questionable stories about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine killing people, for example, um, mm. and, you know, without any evidence. And then so we've seen some of those articles getting reposted by anti-vaccine groups on Facebook. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole host of characters here, and the anti-vaxxer groups are obviously quite prominent uh, in this, but they are by no means the only group. More education needed here from government on all of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. Dr. Joy Hatley, again, uh, who was one of a prominent voice for us in this report, she spoke of her concern that there have just been so many voices that in Canada we haven't had that one trusted voice to guide us through this. We have heard from, you know, a host of voices. I mean, part of that, of course, because health is a provincial jurisdiction, right? But we just, you turn on the news and sometimes you'll see a whole bunch of different experts and, and public health officials saying slightly different things. Um, Canadians just are having a hard time figuring out who to trust. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. this is already in the context of, of, you know, the Donald Trump area, era and the post-truth era, distrust in institutions and then not having, you know, a government leader in Canada, whether it's, you know, public health or an elected official to kind of be the voice to guide us through this. It has been, you know, instead a lot of noise and it's hard to cut through that. And again, you have, I mean, I spoke to a young woman uh, who remains anonymous in our report, but her mother, uh, who's in her 50s, successful business owner, no history of conspiracy theories, but she's a very social person. Uh, she was very upset with the first lockdown, the fact that she had to stay inside. She didn't agree. She thought it was a whole overreaction. And so she she didn't know where to turn. She'd never spent any time on a computer. But what else was she going to do? So she starts, you know, she gets set up on Facebook and she starts reading these articles. And she just didn't have that digit, that media literacy that maybe the younger generation has. Yeah. Now she's out attending protests. She thinks this is World War Three. Her daughter challenged her on her beliefs. She threatened to kick her daughter out of the house. Um, and, you know, which raises the question, how do you even begin to talk to friends and family members about this stuff? Right. So, yeah, I that's think a whole he, other show. <laughs> that's a whole other show. And obviously I, I can go on and on and on. But I think you're right. It's uh, the child for I mean, the short answer to that question is just that experts say try and speak to their fears and the underlying fears rather than debate the specifics of a particular conspiracy theory. You know, get to the heart of the issue, which is often the people are, are very afraid. They feel very vulnerable. They're frustrated and they're sitting at home on the internet. Great point. Jeff Semple with a senior correspondent for, uh, senior correspondent for Global National. Tonight, COVID Deniers airs 7 o'clock on Global. Uh, the title says it all, and just some of the confusion and the place we find ourselves uh, in today's COVID-19 world. Jeff, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck.
Thanks, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The good news coming out of the health world today is that uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been approved uh, by Health Canada and should be arriving in Canada by the time the second quarter rolls around. So uh, more to choose from and um, obviously just uh, more in the toolbox when it comes to time to uh, to actually ridding ourselves of this uh, global pandemic, which just seems to be hanging on and hanging hanging on and hanging on. And the longer we take to vaccinate, obviously, uh, the more chance there is of variants. And that's what this has become, a race between variants uh, and vaccine. So let's talk about uh, the new data that is out and where we are with this uh, new vaccine and bring in longtime health journalist and investigative reporter Jonathan Schur is with us. Jonathan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Hope you are as well. Uh, first, let's start with the data that came out yesterday, and then we'll uh, roll to the uh, vaccine. Um, obviously, a few weeks ago, we heard modeling that, you know, March, it could get quite ugly. There was chats of a chatter of a third wave and and that sort of thing. And again, uh, you know, where the vaccine and the, the new variants meet, so to speak. Um, what did you get from the information released yesterday? It seems a bit more optimistic. Yeah, um, it is a bit more optimistic, um, it, probably because the baseline in Ontario is, is pretty low overall. Um, things have been trending downwards since uh, mid-January, uh, and so that has lent some cause for optimism. At the same time, uh, the variants that are here already, but in smaller numbers, uh, are a huge wild card. And so um, projections are based upon certain assumptions and when we try to build in assumptions about variants, that's very hard to do. Uh, the uh, one of the doctors, Dr. Brown, said likely recede in the summer. Will likely recede in the summer. Concerned that when we say things, that protocol might drop, or have we been in this long enough? We know the rules of engagement. Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think there's uh, certainly weariness of of, of people uh, dealing with uh, staying uh, inside and and being restricted about who they can come into contact with. Um, I, I do think there's a general belief that uh, a combination of factors will lead to lower risk in the summer. Um, and, and the bigger question is about what happens to the risk between now and then. Um, yeah, again, it's still, it's, is it accurate to say it's a race between the vaccine and the variants? It's it's partly that, and really the speed of the vaccines and their delivery and variants. And, and again, we don't know that much about the future path of variants. Uh, and there's also big questions remaining about uh, vaccines and distribution, uh, because uh, there's great global demand to get those vaccines. It's great news, of course, that a third vaccine is approved for use in Canada. All things being equal, that will help. Uh, but... How much that helps remains to be seen. Um, the government's being very vague about the delivery schedule of this third vaccine to be approved. Um, while Canada purchased uh, 22 million doses, which is a large number, uh, the prime minister said that uh, there would be uh, uh, there be about half a million in the coming weeks and 1.5 million by the end of March, so that represents really just a small fraction of the overall delivery. No doubt uh, there are efforts to try to speed that up 
as there are efforts to try to speed or at least maintain the pace of the other two vaccines. Uh, but it remains to be seen how successful those efforts are. Uh, why the delay in the AstraZeneca? I remember hearing a while ago that it, you know approval was only days away and then things seemed to get complicated. What, what slowed it up? I, I don't have a seat behind the scenes to, to really know. There has been a real split in, in Europe about the use of the vaccine. Uh, the U.K. has embraced it uh, and distributed a very large number of doses. Of course, um, uh, it was patented and, and created there by Oxford University. Some European countries have been uh, uh, very slow uh, to uptake uh, their, that use, uh, specifically Germany, France, and Austria. Uh, the clinical data uh, that was initially released did not have a lot of uh, information about the effect on those 55 and older. Uh, the sample size of those people were, were, was relatively small, and so there just wasn't enough to conclude based upon the trials um, what the effect might be on people who are elderly. So some European countries have been limiting the use to younger people. Uh, the UK experience, though, has been generally positive uh, uh, with elderly people. Uh, and perhaps, and I don't know, but perhaps that was a factor that was considered by Health Canada. Many have talked about the efficacy of the AstraZeneca coming in at about 62%, uh, the other two over 90, obviously. Uh, are we making too much about the efficacy rate? Because uh, at the end of the day, why take the AstraZeneca if you can get the Pfizer? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, and it's good to understand what they mean by efficacy rate. And, and that has to do with um, the degree to which people who get it uh, won't get um, uh, COVID at all uh, compared to uh, if they didn't have the, the vaccine. And the rates are significantly lower than the other two vaccines. But perhaps the more important number to most people and to the health system as a whole is how much does it re reduce the risk of death and serious illness that requires hospitalization. Uh, and there... Uh, uh, the data, uh, at least in terms of what's happened in the UK, is more promising and shows results that are more comparable to the two other vaccines. Uh, so, so uh, short answer is um, the new, the newest addition to the arsenal of vaccines in Canada uh, doesn't do much to stop asymptomatic spread. Uh, it's probably not as effective at stopping uh, lower-grade infections, uh, but it may be pretty close to stopping death and serious illness. And I guess the advantage to, to the AstraZeneca is that it doesn't require the, the logistics with the freezing and the troubles transporting it at all, so this makes it a more viable vaccine for uh, remote areas, areas that don't have the refrigeration capacity or that wouldn't for uh, the other types of vaccine. Yes, and um, especially compared to the first uh, Pfizer vaccine that was available, and that's especially important in a country like Canada, which has pockets of small population uh, uh, in very remote areas uh, uh, that clearly need to get access as well.
Uh, I've asked this question of, of pretty much every guest I've had on, and obviously uh, um, there, there's no right answer at this point just because the clinical testing hasn't been done. But there's been lots of debate about holding back the second dose or unloading everything and trying to vaccinate as many people as you possibly can. Ontario and Quebec, a great example of that. Uh, Ontario has, has uh, I think, vaccinated over 70% for their second shot. Uh, Quebec has decided not to put any second shots in and obviously do instead of you know holding them back doubling the amount of, of the initial uh, first shot uh, obviously Health Canada and the manufacturer say to hold the second dose for uh, 21 to 28 days that is that's the clinical research that that has been done uh, obviously some are, are are trying different methods here so if that is the case uh, and, and, you know, provinces like Quebec are saying we're just gonna, we're gonna vaccinate as many as we can and not bother to hold back the second dose. When you look at a, uh, you know, a AstraZeneca that's coming in at a 62% advocacy rate, even with one dose, the Pfizer, I think we're seeing still pretty high results, almost, uh, where it was and certainly well above the AstraZeneca. So if we're getting 62% efficacy rate with the AstraZeneca, and that is after two shots, uh, why would we not just do what Quebec's doing and shoot one into everybody, considering it's still more effective than what the AstraZeneca would be? Well, presumably you're asking why we don't do that with Pfizer and uh, Moderna. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and you made reference to this, uh, and, and that is there has been um, a split views about efficacy after one dose over time before the right. second dose is delivered. Mm-hmm. Initially, the messaging from the manufacturers was you need the second dose to get close to that full efficacy. Uh, there's been some data presented since that suggests that's not necessarily true, uh, but uh, I-, I would suggest there's not a consensus yet on that. With the newest vaccine, AstraZeneca, that question of a second dose um, actually becomes an easier one to answer because the, the the latest research on that vaccine is that a second dose is actually more effective if given 12 weeks after the first dose yeah. than if given after a shorter interval. So that means that for those getting this third vaccine, uh, that they're, it will fit better logistically with the fact Canada will have far fewer and has far fewer vaccines in these early months than it would like uh, to administer. Uh, obviously, supply has been an issue. So uh, all of the discussion has been about who gets it, uh, how does it get here, uh, how do you go about signing up, all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, what is the proper method and such? Those are questions we have when there's very limited supply. What happens when there's lots of supply and none of these questions are really relevant anymore? How concerned are you about hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not overly concerned. Uh, I don't think that we have the same uh, uh, kind of irrational fear of vaccines that we're seeing in our neighbors to the south to that to that same degree. Um, so I, I don't expect that to be um, a significant um, issue, um, and I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that it will not be 
uh, a, a big issue in Canada. Uh, obviously, uh, committees underway now uh, monitoring how we've done during this, and in, in whether it's vaccine or, or the actual virus uh, itself, uh, we're starting to start starting to see here a lot from manufacturers now, uh, including uh, Moderna, the co-founder of Moderna, saying Canada should invest in facilities to make their own uh, vaccines. Uh, we've had uh, many come forward. Uh, after the prime minister said that we weren't capable of doing it and, and say that, yeah, we can, we just need the support that they're giving others. Talk a little bit about Canadian production and how that discussion has changed in the last year. Well, I think when you have a, a pandemic of a level that hasn't been seen in the century, it, it does change the debate. Um, and, and it has. Um, I, I think that uh, there is a growing acknowledgement and a building sentiment that, that there should be some capability to invest in facilities here uh, so that we're ready the next time something like this comes about. It, 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 you know, work is underway. It's going to come far too late to make a dent um, with this particular novel coronavirus. Um, but I don't think having gone through the experience uh, uh, since late 2020 where uh, we have seen orders for vaccines pushed back by manufacturers, largely European manufacturers, uh, having gone through that experience, I, I do think uh, there will be a building uh, uh, consensus in Canada that we do need to invest in facilities here as well. Uh, it's interesting. We've had qu- quite a few of these manufacturers on, and for example, Novavax. They're talking about you know just in the new year, January. Theirs coming uh, uh, will be ready. Uh, Providence Therapeutics have said they're looking at early in the new year uh, for approval of theirs as well. But also saying if we jumped on this back in March and April, we'd be there by now. What are your thoughts to that? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, in March, I mean, and I've I've been. Uh, not shy about questioning some of the decisions uh, that have been made at, at both the federal and provincial level on procurement of vaccines and distribution, um, uh, because there have been mistakes, as one would expect, dealing with a pandemic of the sort that we haven't seen in the century. Um, you know, that said, um, I think that in March or April of last year, very few people uh, had a sense of how significant, certainly in early March, this would become. Um, um, and uh, and at that stage, we were in the very early games of manufacturers trying to come out and uh, create these vaccines. Um, and the speed in which they were able to do so, I think, was faster than what people had Yeah. Months later, we should have done something in March or April. Um, that's a little bit mon- Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, that being uh, said, the UK was in the same position and, and they spun it around. What are your What, what were your thoughts on um, us jumping on the board the CanSino deal with China, only to have them pull the rug out from underneath it? Uh, are you surprised that you know um, we did a production deal with? 
with China, considering, you know, the U.S. is there. Uh, we ended up signing the Novavax deal. That's a U.S. company anyway. And there were certainly lots of Canadian companies that, that were said at the time they were only, I think it was six to eight weeks behind Pfizer and Moderna. Right. Well, I mean, a couple of things. There had been a history of cooperation in terms of research between China and Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, there had not been a history of production of this magnitude or a challenge of this magnitude. So, again, in hindsight, uh, uh, it didn't work out. Um, I'm sure that Canadian policymakers are going to be much more wary in the future about uh, those sorts of deals. Um, but, um, you know, was it a mistake? Uh, uh, I think now we can say it, it, it was. Um, but it, it was also um, the problem with Canada's strategy uh, was not the lack of procurement of vaccines, the number. The, the, the failure so far has been in s s speed of supply um, because timeliness matters uh, dealing with a pandemic and uh, the raw numbers, not so much. And, and so I think when we are past the point of, uh, uh, of recovering from this pandemic so that we can really seriously start to draw lessons upon it, I think that issue of speed uh, of access, uh, and, and that relates more closely to domestic production, is going to be uh, on the front burner. Health journalist and investigative reporter Jonathan Scheer has been with us talking about where we are with COVID-19 and pending vaccina uh, vaccinations, vaccines coming in from now, uh, more than just Pfizer and Moderna with uh, AstraZeneca being approved today. Jonathan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Nice uh, speaking with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have uh, been chatting uh, a lot about the various angles of COVID-19, including... Uh, including uh, uh, production. Uh, obviously, uh, vaccine production has been a um, uh, an issue for Canada in the sense that we, uh, you know, we have uh, greatly fallen by the wayside compared to where we were at one time and just not doing enough to entice these companies to, uh, you know, to, to set up shop here in Canada. And obviously, that's something that's going to change. Uh, we've certainly talked about uh, since uh, the prime minister presented the issue that uh, we don't make this stuff, you know, uh, and we have to rely on others. Uh, that started a massive conversation rolling. And, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Providence Therapeutics or other various companies in Canada that are slowly starting to, uh, well, not slowly, they've been ramping this stuff up for a while, but trying to get the attention of uh, the government to say, hey, we can do this here if we only get the support uh, that we need. And the great news is that that's happening even locally. As we're seeing, McMaster University has signed a partnership that could lead to producing millions of doses of vaccine uh, in Hamilton next year to fight the various variants of COVID-19 virus and other diseases in the future. That's the view of Jerry Wright, a biomedical science professor at the uh, and a top official with the university's global nexus for pandemic 
and biological threats that was launched last fall. The partnership has McMaster's Global Nexus joining forces with the University of Saskatchewan and uh, their vaccine and infectious disease organization, which has a long track record of human and animal vaccination research and development. So to talk more about uh, Mac's involvement in all of this, uh, Jerry Wright is with us now. Jerry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I'm doing I'm doing nicely on a beautifully sunny day, enjoying this, the almost spring here. Yeah, that's right. We're almost there. Uh, so, Jerry, uh, lots of chatter about how, you know, where we were and how we've dropped the ball. And now all of a sudden, boom, uh, we're seeing uh, various private companies, universities now really jumping on board to uh, get us back to where we were. Talk about McMaster's involvement and, and what exactly you guys are doing. So we're, uh, you know, we have a long-standing um, expertise and in infrastructure that's available to four things like uh, vaccine development, and um, we've been working on a uh, on a vaccine candidate that would be, you know, what we call second generation. That is, would have more capacity to deal with some of these variants that we're seeing popping up, for example, um, and uh, we put our infrastructure uh, to good use and. and Built, did all the necessary research over the last, um, you know, eight months or so, and and uh, we have a good candidate and a, and a facility that can roll it out. So, uh, talk about how uh, you, you know the whole global nexus uh, program and, and how this works because this is not new for Mac. No, so the the nexus really is came about as. Uh, um, as a way of consolidating across the entire university, all the activities that we have in the area of, of preventing and um, dealing with infectious disease problems. And so that includes, you know, our deep strength in, in the clinic uh, and on the biomedical side, so in virology and, and bacteriology and, and what have you, uh, but also in engineering uh, where, you know, we've seen uh, our, our, amazing teams there just pivot very quickly to develop uh, new PPE uh, to uh, our colleagues in, in social sciences and, and humanities who are dealing with, you know, ethics uh, around, uh, you know, the pandemic, for example, or uh, the impact that this uh, is having on society as a whole. So the Global Nexus is, uh, purpose is to consolidate this this research, make sure that we're all talking to each other, understand that we could actually address these big problems going, you know, all the way from the clinic to how this is affecting, for example, the, uh, the, the elderly in long-term care facilities, uh, and really um, get in on trying to solve these really big problems in a multidisciplinary way. And to do this with partners. And so that was the, the other thing. We can't, you know, one place can't do it all. And, and so we uh, have a long-standing uh, series of partnerships with a number of private sector companies that are involved in this area, but also with our academic uh, colleagues around, around Canada and, and the globe. And, and this announcement this week um, where we formalized a, a partnership with Vito in Saskatchewan is an example of how we're doing this and, and, and trying to really work together to solve these big problems for Canadians. 
I know that universities across all departments, I mean, you know, it's nothing new, the phrase, you know, um, tearing down the silos, trying to get more to work with each other and work collaboratively, whether it's within the university or other universities or, or even with private industry. But it's amazing how once you introduce a global pandemic to this, how it all just goes at lightning speed. Are you, are you surprised at just once the world started working together at this, how quickly this this all came about. I'll be completely candid with you and tell you, yes, I am surprised. Um, you know, if you would have asked me a, a year ago, if, you know, and we heard today that uh, the Health Canada approved the AstraZeneca vaccine, that we would have three vaccine candidates for a, uh, a disease that had just reared itself on the global stage um, 12 months ago, and then we would have these solutions out there right now, I, I would have thought it not possible just because of all the things that you just said. It's, it's so hard to integrate across all these different platforms. Um, but I think it speaks just volumes to, uh, to the, you know, first of all, to the importance of science, right? I mean, all, mm. this didn't happen overnight because uh, these discoveries. So, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the vaccine that we've been working on here at McMaster is based on technology um, that was developed by uh, McMaster scientists actually uh, back in the 80s. And so this is fundamental research that's that's coming uh, home to roost to when we need it. So same thing with the mRNA vaccines that we're hearing so much about. You know, mRNA is something that was discovered as a you know in laboratories um, decades ago um, with. Uh, you know, no obvious, but the people who were working on it weren't thinking that it was going to be a, a vaccine delivery system or a vaccine uh, target. So so this is this is really the success of science, uh, I think, you know, how quickly we've been able to move. Um, it still hasn't been fast enough, as you know, um, and in particular how it's affected our most vulnerable populations. And this is one of the things that the, the Global Nexus really wants to tackle is so the amazing advances in science have to get to the right people at the right time and, mm-hmm. and making sure that we, we understand what these inequities are and, and try and deal with them up front and, and make sure that we have the experts on hand to, to direct us uh, where we should be de- applying these solutions. And I think that's key for our success in the future. Uh, and obviously, that uh, the AstraZeneca and its ability to uh, uh, transfer a lot, e- a transportation a lot easier than it is with a, a Pfizer or a Moderna. They don't have the the freezer logistics to deal with. Uh, this vaccine is probably perfectly suited for exactly what you're talking about and hitting areas where they they don't have this infrastructure. That's exactly right. I mean, um, it's so important. You know, it's great in a, in a large um, urban area like we have we, and with big hospitals that we can deal with some of these these refrigeration challenges. But if you start thinking about our our more northern uh, communities and other communities stretched out across this vast country um, that don't have access to to uh, large uh, medical centers like the ones that we have, then you really start to understand how important it is for for us to invest in all of these technologies to make sure that we can we can really adequately and in an equitable fashion uh, address problems like this as they come up. We've been talking about the speed at which this vaccine, these vaccines came to fruition and how everybody has been working together on this, obviously, because it is a global pandemic. It has sort of taken priority over 
uh, you know, business and commerce and everything else, although that is certainly rearing its ugly head. We know we, we know the challenge is there. But but are these new processes and procedures going to stay? In other words, this, this new collaboration that is going on, is that going to be the new gold standard now? Well, that's exactly what the Global Nexus's objective is, is to create a hub where this is going to be a permanent part of the Canadian uh, answers to infectious disease threats going forward so that we are engaging the, the private sector, that we are engaging social sciences and, 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 uh, and other areas at the same time so that we can do exactly what you said, which is to, to deal with these things very quickly and not to have to try and build teams on the fly. Um, so if we have... If we have our organizations like or initiatives like the Nexus, that exists. That means that we already have the communication lines across all of these sectors built in so we can pivot even faster the next time we deal with some a big challenge like this. All right, so let's talk about specifically what McMaster is you is working on the partnership. Uh, this could lead uh, the release to producing millions of doses of the vaccine in Hamilton. So where does it go? How does it get from where you are now uh, to the point where it's actually in people's arms? And will will this actually be produced locally? Yeah. So uh, we have at McMaster um, a uh, laboratory that is. Um, that is set up to produce these adenoviral-based vaccines, so like the Astra one and the J&J one, um, that is of clinical grade. So we can use them to, to put into people's arms, as you said. Our capacity, so right now what we've been doing is working on this vaccine that I mentioned before, our, our in-house vaccine, which uh, we hope will have um, the capacity to deal with a lot of these variants as they come up because it has not just one protein, the spike protein, which you've, everyone has heard about, but, but several other antigens as well. And so we're in a production run right now with that, and we're, we're uh, looking for uh, Health Canada approval. Uh, all, the, all the paperwork is going in um, to, so that we can get this into clinical trials uh, in, in short order. Um, we could, after that run is over, move to production of other vaccines, uh, like the Astra one, for example, if, we're, if licensing were, were available. And we could do that starting probably in April or May. So, produce, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt there. So is this about producing your own or creating your own product, or is this about taking a license from someone and, and producing it here? So we, we can do both. Right now, we're working on our own product. This is a, a Canadian vaccine. The intellectual property is Canadian, and, we, and we're hoping that the production could be here in Canada as well. So there, our current vaccine was developed right here with, with um, the, the amazing colleagues that I have at, the, at McMaster. What I'm saying is that if, as that is going into early stage clinical trials, right. certainly what we could do um, in, in the meantime is take... Uh, is take a vaccine like an Astra vaccine that is that has received Health Canada approval, and and produce it here in Canada as well if if we, if it's needed. Um, now, once you get to the production stage, is that something that is done in house at the university, or is that farmed out to a private industry at that point? So once we can we can grow up the uh, 
the virus here, the adenoviral vector itself that is that is the vaccine. And then in order to put it into vials, we have to ship that to a different uh, installation. Right. Um, and then we get it back. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping uh, in the future that, that we can develop that fit, what's called fill and finish uh, capacity here in, in, in Hamilton. Um, but we just don't have it right now. Is, you know, many people have said, well, gee whiz, you could never predict a pandemic uh, that happens once in 100 years, although many people have. Uh, is this something that we need to do? Many are, are thinking that, you know, everybody's talking about this now, but as soon as they realize, well, you know, there hasn't been another one around for a few years, that this will all subside again and we'll start relying on on others again for our supply. Do you see it going that way or, we, or have we learned a lesson here? Oh, gosh, I hope we finally learned the lesson. I mean, we went through this with SARS. We went through this with H1N1. I mean, these things are coming, uh, are going to continue to come at us. And as the world contracts and as we're dealing with other large environmental problems like climate change that are pushing, you know, infectious diseases out of their niches around the world and into uh, wider circulation, you know, you can guarantee that this is going to happen so I think, you know, that we would, if we do not learn our lesson at this stage, then shame on us hmm. because we've, we have, we have jeopardized the future by not, by not taking the lessons of, of the current challenge. I mean, this, the impact that this thing is having on everybody is, is, yeah. you know, like you said, it's like once in a generation, um, but we could also be leaders. I mean, so if you think about if we build this capacity and we have outbreaks of a disease in another part of the world, we could rapidly develop uh, vaccines and, and ship them out for that so that it doesn't spread around the world, right? Otherwise, it's, what we're doing is we're waiting for other people to solve these problems. And I don't think that uh, that's what we should be doing. It seems uh, policy, and I don't want to get political here, but it seems that policy over the last couple of decades has been geared more towards bringing the price of drugs down, um, specifically prescription drugs, obviously. And it seems we've had more interest in investing in generic drugs than we are R&D. Is that coming back to bite us? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's obviously more complex than that. I think um, that uh, things like vaccines, for example, don't get a lot of uh, or to drugs for infectious organisms don't get a lot of traction no matter what. So there's not a lot of profit margin to begin there in the first place. Yeah. Right. And so, or preventing a disease is, is rarely something that you can, um, you can put a price tag on, except when you're in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a, a sort of an, an area of medicine that doesn't get enough attention from the pharmaceutical industry in the first place. So you think of antibiotics as another good example. Nobody wants to make new antibiotics, even though we all know that we desperately need them. Um, and it's because you can't make any money on them. So it means that we have to think of new... And it's a very, it's very, very expensive to do that R&D, isn't it? Of course, yeah. It's just, it costs the same yeah. amount of money to make a new antibiotic as it costs to make a new blood pressure medicine. But you'll yeah. never make any money out of it. So because no one wants to use it unless they absolutely have to. It's the same with these vaccines, right? Mm. So... What we need are different economic models going forward and to, to figure out how we're going to pay for this because it's in, it's obviously in our best interest to do so. Otherwise, we have these, these significant problems that we have to deal with. 
So look into your crystal ball, Jerry. When do you think we, you know, if everything moves as, as smoothly as, as you hope, when do you think you could actually see something coming out of Matt going into a Hamiltonian's arm? Well, we're looking for approval for clinical trials um, in uh, right now. If we can start to do that and get start to enroll people, uh, and we'll do that probably locally, um, we could see it happen over the over the summer. I think we could be able to develop, if we assuming we get approval, um, that if the vaccine is as, as effective as we hope it will be. Um, we'll be ready uh, probably, I would guess, in the uh, fall sometime to be able to produce a significant amount of made-in-Canada made in vaccine. Again, you're not starting from scratch, but, man, that's incredibly quick, isn't it? Yeah, and, again, I think it's, it's so important that we have invested in, in first of all, the, the fundamental research behind this, you know, years ago, and then the ability to actually do something with it uh, more recently, you know, this came about from investments from the federal and provincial government uh, over the years, but also the massive importance of philanthropy in this area. Um, you know, the laboratory um, that uh, that all of this is happening in, all the vaccine developments happening in, is the Fitzhenry lab that was uh, the result of a generous donation. So mm. this this mix of of federal support, provincial support. And the real importance of philanthropy is something that, that we've been really benefiting from in the infectious disease um, area in, at McMaster, for sure. Jerry Wright's been with us, biomedical sciences professor and top official with McMaster University's Global Nexus for Pandemics and Biological Threats. Uh, talking about McMaster's uh, McMaster University's vaccine, they are working alongside uh, with the University of Saskatchewan. Jerry, thanks so much for the time and insight. Best of luck with all of this. You're making us all proud. Uh, thanks a million for your support. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move uh, to the other side of the world and uh, a story that's, um, you know, anytime you talk about COVID-19 and the global pandemic, eventually uh, these sorts of stories come to play. And uh, obviously uh, our, our once golden relationship with China has uh, tarnished severely since uh, well, I guess the last couple of decades, uh, when at once uh, it was thought as uh, the golden goose and where all the future lies and everybody was investing. Now, of course, uh, things have changed. And now we're questioning any sort of relationship that we have with Beijing, with China, and for obvious reasons, the two Michaels uh, being incarcerated for over 800 days is the first that comes to mind. Uh, but now as we probe deeper into this relationship, uh, there's lots of questions and red flags that are being raised, uh, including the uh, latest headline from the Globe and Mail from Stephen Chase, uh, senior parliamentary reporter, along with uh, some of his colleagues. Uh, no indication federal security agencies were consulted before Beijing's visa center was approved. This is an interesting story. Uh, no indication the Department of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship consulted federal security agencies before approving an arrangement for a company owned by the Chinese police to manage Canada's Visa Application Center in Beijing. This all came out at committee yesterday in front of uh, MPs. Let's bring in Stephen Chase now from the Globe and Mail. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. Thanks for having me. Explain to everybody why this is not good. Well, this is a bit of a uh, an interesting development. So <clears throat> Canada has, um, you know, people who want to come to Canada, 
uh, they want to leave their country, their homelands, and come to Canada, have to make applications. These are very personal applications. They contain tons of sensitive data, as well as their fingerprints and and, uh, and so on and so forth. So they make these applications uh, at what are called visa application centers around the world. Turns out that the one in Beijing is is run by, is operated by the a company owned by the Chinese police, by effectively the Beijing Municipal Public Security Bureau. Mm. This is an organization that's been um, has a terrible re- reputation. It is it is uh, castigated by human rights groups around the world. It, not 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 a not a very good reputation. They happen to run this center, and we've been. Uh, We've been digging away on this for a while now, trying to figure out how this could have happened, how we could have uh, arrived at this state. And there's a lot of amnesia in uh, the federal government about this. Nobody seems to know how this came about. And so last night, uh, you had the public safety minister uh, at committee, at uh, at, uh, the Canada-China committee, and he was... Um, really trying to put distance between himself and this decision. He uh, said, for instance, uh, he asked all his the agencies that report to him, the RCMP, CSIS, if any of them had known about this, and they said no, they weren't even consulted on it. And he said that basically it looks like Immigration Department made this decision by himself. So there was a lot of uh, buck passing last night, a lot of uh, attempts to sort of distance this. They also um, made the argument that this was this company started working for the government back in 2008, so really it was made by the Harper government. It wasn't really their fault or their problem. Unfortunately, we've discovered that the contract was put up for tender twice since then, including in 2018. So oh every time the government puts up the, the, the contract for a tender, it has to be uh, reassessed and due diligence has to be done. So this is uh, an ongoing story. We're trying to figure out uh, how this could have come about, and we're not getting a lot of answers. We did, however, learn last week that Public Works, the department uh, which now is actually called um, Procurement Canada, Public Service Procurement Canada, it, it said that they uh, did not know this company was owned by the, the Chinese police. That was a revelation to them. So we, we continued to, to dig away, not getting a clear answer on whether the government really knew what it was getting itself into. Nobody seems to own up to it, and last night was another example of that. So, um, uh, why is it bad that the uh, that a company owned by uh, by the Beijing police is the one that is that is managing all of this? Um, you, you know, obviously, yeah. times have changed in our relationship with Canada. What kind of influence can they have? What could they do here? They could be. Uh, um, tracking who's trying to leave the country. If you're a dissident, if you're any n- number of people who's fallen afoul of the Chinese government, and you are entering these centers to try to uh, make your exit, uh, you didn't, uh, the, the, the real concern that's being raised is do you want to trust this center? I mean, this is the capital city of China. Many people are going to be using this center. The, um, the, if you look at the pictures and video of the offices, there are surveillance cameras everywhere. There are terminals. You walk in, you hand your information to a staffer who is employed by a company owned by the Chinese police, and they input this information to a computer, and it, get whisks, it gets whisked off to Canada. The government and the company that runs it have said, well, you know, there's no place to stick a USB key into the terminal, so they can't, like, you know, copy it. There's no way to email it. But that leaves an enormous number of ways in which one of the most um, powerful police forces in China could keep track of people trying to flee the country. 
And ultimately, would they not be involved in the decision of who gets to go into the queue? They they would they could manipulate that information. Here's who gets picked, who do, who doesn't, for their own various reasons. And the government insists that's not the case, that there's no reason to believe this. But what, again, is, is very striking is the government also admitted this week it didn't know. Hmm. The department in charge of arranging the contract, Public Works Department, said it didn't know. It didn't run an ownership check on this company. Uh, many they, have uh, many have uh, shown great concern over what appears to be a soft spot for China uh, from this government. The 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 issue about genocide and using the term. There's many examples of that. Um, is the government aware that Canadians are starting to see this soft spot and the fact that something like this did not raise a red flag in some way, considering our relationship? I think what happened is, as as you said at the outset of your, of your of this conversation, is that China's the perception of China has changed dramatically. In the early aughts, uh, this was still um, uh, considered a possible partner for Canada. It was still it would just the China that we know of from the year two thousand, for instance, was just admitted to the World Trade Organization. There was a great hope that it would democratize, it would become a fully uh, fledged member of the international community, that it would, it would introduce um, far more freedom into its economy. In 2012, with the ascension of Xi Jinping, uh, that, uh, China has taken a hard turn, and that has changed how Western countries view China. So really, it's before Xi Jinping in 2012 and after Xi Jinping uh, those are two different eras, really, and we're in a new era. So, a contract that may have been um, that people wouldn't have thought twice about in 2008 has, however, been renewed in 2018 with nobody nobody doing the due diligence they should have. So, um, there is, uh, I think, really, you have to judge things based on how how has the government of Canada behaved since 2012. So, where does this information go from here, Stephen? What what happens next? Well. Uh, we are still trying to figure out what kind of audits and what kind of due diligence the government has done on the people who run this office. Uh, did they vet them? Uh, did, have they done security checks on them? We're, we're not getting a lot of answers. We're asking about um, about the Immigration Department and the Public Works Department to explain this. Uh, the government, at best of times, take a long time to respond. So. Uh, we're waiting for answers, but Mr. the immigration minister will be up at committee in a couple weeks, and so he'll have to answer these questions as well. So it's um, it's sort of a slow unveiling. Uh, we keep digging away at it, trying to get answers on uh, whether whether the government's going to continue with this with this agreement, whether they think it's acceptable, uh, whether they can sustain the defense that everything's secure there. Uh, that remains to be seen. Stephen Chase with his senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. The article, no indication federal security agencies were consulted before Beijing Visa Center was approved. Stephen, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Um, Another uh, just bizarre story how uh, the people that are applying for citizenship out of China into Canada, they are being screened and managed by an organization that is run by the Beijing police. They decide who gets to even apply, when you think about it. All right, uh, more concerning events uh, coming out of uh, China and our relationship with uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the apparent soft spot that this government has for it. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.